<laughs> You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. has indeed been quite a while since you've heard from the podcast Deliberations of Doom, and Deliberations of Doom has gone through a number of incarnations over the way by necessity, usually, because we keep having members that join, and then they get really big into doing films and stuff, and they're too busy to do Deliberations of Doom anymore. <laughs> or... Sadly, in the case of our beloved friend, Patience Robinson Campos, she passed away, which is why we ended when we did the last one. We actually even had a whole episode queued up and ready. Like, we had all watched the movies, we were ready to go, and then she's like, I'm going into the hospital. Like, oh, man. Very sad, but this is coming back together with a new crew, with the exception of Alan Galinsky. Who Your was, boy is back. Yeah, was here in the last <laughs> one. Really, with the full blessing of Patience, who I spent a lot of time with her in the last couple of weeks, and she was like, please don't stop doing the podcast, because I can't be there anymore. Please do it again, but you better get a girl to replace me. <laughs> Hi! <Hey. laughs> it's the girl, this is Madeline Fontenot. Hello. Hello, hello. Fontenot. Fontenot, I'm sorry. Yeah, I no, said, no. I got corrected the other day with someone else <laughs> who has the same name. Like, you, you are all good. They're like, you've never been to Louisiana, have you? <laughs> <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> Yeah. And also joining us is a new regular on the site on the Screener Squad, Drew Timmon. Hi, it's good to be back for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so before we really get started, you know, everybody already knows about Alan and what he does. He's a musician, and uh, he's got a band that plays around town a bunch. Shout out to the Delicate Boys. (laughs) Yep, there you go. Yeah. (laughs) But let's hear a little bit from both of y'all. Why do you like horror? What else do you do with horror? Uh, Drew, why don't you start us off? The thing I I fell in love with horror, I think, because I was always uh, grounded on Halloween all the time. Like, I think I managed sometime in October to always get in trouble. So I was always sitting there watching marathons all the time, and I was an Elm Street kid growing up. And of course, reading Fangoria all the time and and, um, putting it all over my walls, which disturbed my entire family, as it should. (laughs) Yeah. So I moved to New York and started at uh, at Fangoria and started working on the radio show there, which was fantastic with uh, Dee Snyder and Debbie Roshan. I still have fond memories from that. You know, still know all those guys, but I've been with uh, Dread Central for a long time, and we just have a new editorial team now, which is like really exciting, covering TIFF at the moment. So just saw some really good horror films. Can't quite talk about yet. We keep queuing up horror films to review, and Drew's like, seeing it. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh yeah, that one's good. You should watch that. Or don't, or completely ignore that one. But yeah, I mean, I'm always in the business kind of like championing movies. I don't want to like critique them and shit on them too much. I don't, especially with smaller films, there's no reason to do that at all. You know, if you don't like something, that's great. But, you know, I think we're all here because we love horror movies. You want to celebrate them, um, but it's okay to still have strong opinions. I always compare horror to comedy because they're both so about instinctual reaction and whether or not what you're going to find appealing, you know, whether it be scary or funny. 
funny. It's so based on your your own particular personality. We're not always going to agree on stuff, yeah. and that's as it should be. Mm-hmm. But when you're someone is totally wrong, don't worry, folks. I'll I'll tell them they are. <laughs> <laughs> Madeline, my instinct is to call you Mads for short, but I can't because that's what we call the doctors on Mystery Science Theater. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Starts with Matt. I'll probably respond to Ma. it. <laughs> <laughs> so don't call you Meh. Meh. No, Meh. Uh, so how did you discover horror? Ah, uh, it was sort of just through growing up. As far as the spooky lifestyle, both of my parents were like, the the spooky 80s music, the proto-goths, they were the goths before goth was a thing. And I just grew up around that, and my mom has never really liked horror movies. My mom can't do gore, my dad can't do naughty, sexy scenes, and so there was kind of this strange overlap of just stuff we never watch. So like covering your eyes at different times. Uh, Oh, (laughs) them covering your own eyes and me just being like, I don't know why y'all have a problem with this. And so when mom would go away out of the house, especially around the time I was like 11 or 12, that's when I became a very spooky child. My dad and I would just be like, okay, let's see what's on Netflix. What scary looking horror is there on Netflix? And it just kind of grew from there. I've read a lot more than I have watched movies in my Mm. lifetime. It's a lot of Stephen King, but also a lot of sci-fi with that kind of, oh, this is a bad thing twist. Mm. Um, But I have lots of ground to cover because there are many, many things I have not seen. So this is lots of me dipping my toes into darker waters. It's exciting. You are the youngest member of our cast, youngest person we've ever had on the show, so you really do have, just by sheer, I haven't had as many years to watch, (laughs) haven't seen as much. So it'll be fun to sort of discover some of the classics through your eyes as we go. I want to warn everyone that this show, Deliberations of Doom, is a full spoiler show. We're talking a lot of time about older films, occasionally newer stuff, but when we discuss it, we are talking about all aspects of it. There's no, well, we don't want to do a spoiler here. We, you don't have to go spoiler alert. This is full on discussing every aspect of the films. And this week, or I should say the next couple weeks, we are going to be discussing horror films about viruses, which should come as absolutely no shock to you. <laughs> what a great way to return. On point. What's funny is when we first got together to talk about it, everything was opening up. It's like, yeah, let's talk about that time. Like, we're out of it. <clears throat> Delta variant. Everyone's back to being scared again. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it seems like this will ever be present in our lives for at least the next couple years of and viruses fresh on the mind. Drew, when you suggested it, you were like, we should uh, do like half films about viruses and half films that were made during the pandemic. I'm like, there's like two films like out that were made during the pandemic that are worth talking about. Yeah, it's amazing know. how many there's actually been. Yeah, even yeah. the series too. Even, even comedy series now at this point, everything's being made and they're figuring out ways to do it. Yeah. yeah. Let's get into it. And we do our movies on the show in order of date of release. And we're going to start off with one of the ones that I picked. The 1964 Roger Corman directed film starring Vincent Price, The Mask of the Red Death. Now, I'm a big Vincent Price fan. I go crazy for it. I don't know. There's something about the guy that I'll watch almost anything. I just watched Theater of Blood for the first time recently. That's a great one. Which is great. Mm -hmm. Didn't realize it was a horror comedy. Did not realize that. Especially when you're a critic, too. You know, and and you might not want to see all these critics being killed. But but still, it's great to see Vincent Price do it. So I have, like, multiple Vincent Price box sets. And yet I still had just never gotten around to watching Mask of the Red Death. And generally speaking, I know Corman, a lot of people who, you know, don't really, really, really deep dive into horror, think of Corman as sort of a schlock director. And yes, he did do an awful lot of schlock. He produced an awful lot of schlock, but sometimes really great schlock. But the exception to this rule with Corman is when he decided he was going to start adapting Edgar Allan Poe stories and 
loosely being the operative term. <laughs> that was my main commentary. <laughs> he decided that he wanted to take this more seriously than anything else he, he had done. And he very much did. And a lot of these films are considered, no question, to be the best movies that he ever made. As well as Vincent Price, who regularly would say, yeah, I think most of the best films I did were in the Poe series. And I think he's in all of them? Uh, maybe so, yeah. I, I think with, you might be right. I'm not sure about Tomb of Lygia. That's one of the few mm-hmm. I haven't seen. He's yet. in Tales he's, of Terror. He certainly yeah. got the voice and the face for it. He should be oh. in all of them. <laughs> Yeah, Absolutely. we could just do a whole show on Vincent Price. I'd be happy. But. <laughs> I wouldn't be mad at it because I'm. I wouldn't be mad. I'm pretty. Like, I would say painfully ignorant of like this era of like horror. Like certain the like mid seventies is where I like I'm pretty literate in. Pre that, like I've seen some of the classics, but I've never seen this. I haven't seen a lot of Vincent Price movies, so. Well, I was digging in on this. And this stars a couple people who are familiar to people who've watched the other movies, like Hazel Court is in here, and she's in three of the other Poe films. Jane Asher, who was known for being one of the leads in a classic British horror, sci-fi horror called The Quatermass Experiment. And then uh, Patrick McGee, who I was watching this going, oh, I know I know this guy. <laughs> Where do I know him from? Well, he's the husband of the woman who gets raped in A Clockwork Orange, right. who ends ah. up sort of torturing Alex later in the film. You're like, oh. And he's been in tons of other stuff, but that's definitely... Definitely his, like, where do I know him from? You know him from that. <laughs> and the story here, it's medieval Italy. Vincent Price plays Prince Prospero, who is, like, the, the rich dude who holds dominion over all the village, poor villages in his area. First meet him, he's coming into one of these villages. When they find out the Red Death, which is just some sort of disease that's there, is killing people, he's like, burn down the village. And everybody manages to leave the village who's not sick. But he takes along the way Francesca, who is a beautiful lady who he has decided he is going to make into a, a lady lady and, you know, we'll presumably start having forced sex with her. Never really gets there, but... But not until she embraces the devil full. I was yes. going to say, not until she gets <laughs> he, married to the devil. Even though this man's a Satanist, he's a very traditional man. He's like, you need to convert <laughs> to my religion first, then we'll get into it, but, you know, let me show you these scriptures. He has this huge court of medieval eyes wide shut parties, you know, like uh, people who love masquerades and dress elaborately and are super rich and eat rich foods and talk about how the poor are horrible. And he's got entertainment there. Two dwarf dancers, although one is actually played by a real little girl and they just dubbed over her voice with yes. an adult woman, yeah, which is really disturbing. And <laughs> that was she, very odd. <laughs> she sounds like a member of the Benet Gesserit or something. Like yeah, it's, it's, like, it's, it's very strange. Also, when a uh, old, what's his name? I think his character's name is. Alfredo is just like, damn, yeah. that girl. And it's just like, Oof, this is yeah. weird. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Uncomfortable. Yeah, very uncomfortable. The male dwarf is named Hop Toad, and this is one of the, as I said, loose adaptations. There's a whole nother Poe story that this incorporates into here that was called Hop Frog, which apparently is based on a true story. I did not know that. Yeah, I never read okay. that. Yeah, I never read that one no. either. But there's like a whole major subplot in here is just that story that's kind of like, Meh. And he has painted green. Yeah, he is that was that was one of the main things that struck me even before I started watching the movie was uh, this is this is one of my favorite Edgar Allan Poe stories. So I pull up the movie and it's automatically like the Satan worshiping Prince Prospero. And I'm like, that's a little different. Yeah, okay, let's go. That's entirely different. But I felt like there was very much the underlying theme in the movie of. I mean, it's a movie about somebody who worships the devil, that good and evil and all the imageries with, like, this pure girl always wearing the cross, the cross burning after he decides to burn the town. There's always that, I'm wearing black, you're wearing white, I am pure, you are not. Lots of all that good, like, English major, really hot and heavy. Yeah. (laughs) Man, I love the period in the 60s and 70s when the satanic panic was huge. (laughs) And, and, like, there are all these great movies you can uncover, little tiny movies that are, like, uh, like, secret satanic cabal in this town. 
I always oh, think yeah. of Cropsy in the 80s and that kind of, you know, era. So it's yeah. nice to go back and remember, oh, yeah, everybody was scared of the devil back in the 60s. Oh, yeah. Right, right. And now modern Satanists are like, we don't even believe in the devil. We just want to piss Christians off. And look cool doing it. There's a, there's a point where the queen is undergoing her own wedding with the devil and the imagery that they have while she's like laying on the table. There are the three sets of men. And it's just like, oh, this all very clearly non-Christian. Like, there's like a like a Mayan dancer, and then there's like a man with a scythe coming to harvest her soul, who's like very clearly Soviet-looking, and then like the dude who's just like we slapped together what we thought three different Egyptian pharaohs would look like, and just like all of the very this is not Christian. So one of the subplots going on here as well is that to make Francesca do what she's told, uh, Prospero has also kidnapped her lover and her father, and is kind of like which one am I going to kill? I'm going to kill one mm-hmm. of them. Playing that sort of game. Yeah. You know, he's a sadist. He is the 60s version of a Satanist. <laughs> and Prospero is full of, I mean, he's almost a Shakespearean Prospero in some ways. You know, he's very full of himself and he's very intelligent and he likes to make everybody else feel dumb and lesser than he is. As it goes on, the plague itself becomes more and more ever present in the background until it's very clear that. All right. Well, this obviously is not going to end well for all these characters, <laughs> but not in a uh, subtle, normal virus sort of way where people start, you know, doctors come in and start going, oh, no, you've got the marks. No, the Red Death is played by an actual character who, who dresses up all in red with a red mask. And we see early in the film and then midway mm-hmm. through the film talking to other characters. And even weirder, at the very end of the film, there's a scene where there are all these other people dressed up in different colors, but just like him. And I was confused, yes. but apparently each one of them stood for a different one of the plagues. Different kind of plague, yeah. Yeah, like exactly. Black plague, like the, the yellow plague. They're wandering around Italy, you know, comparing numbers. <laughs> that's, the most, that's the most beautiful shot in the movie, too. I mean, it's, it's really good. It was gorgeous. Right? The movie is, I love this era. Like, the production design where everything clearly is built and faking like the colors like it's not built oh, for yeah. realism but it is so pretty to look at oh like yeah. his like castle i love that balance of like this is obviously a set we're not like striving for like reality here but it's like if it's a set we're gonna like show you like what the fuck we could do when building a set yes, you know was- it's like very very beautiful it was actually a set they were lucky enough to get because a film called beckett had just wrapped production and they had built that for that movie, which was a big British film. And they were like, Hey, well, they're not going to do anything else with it right now. It's just sitting there. So we'll pay them to use it like a much lesser fee. <laughs> so they got this amazing set dressing and set for almost nothing. That movie, by the way, went on to win multiple BAFTAs. And, oh, wow. But That's you know classic. which one people remember more? Mask yeah. of the Red it's Death. Classic, <laughs> classic Corman too. It's like, Oh, you just built that, huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All well, it's it. done. done like, yeah. like, I mean, we can make it work. Corman was the master of stretching a dollar as far as it could possibly go, but also of discovering really incredible talent. And this movie was no exception because do you know who his cinematographer was on this film? And Nicholas Rogue, right? Exactly. Yeah. Went on to do mm-hmm. movies like Don't Look Now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I know he did The Witches. Not, he did The Witches, mm-hmm. The Man Who Fell to Earth, oh, right, right. Walk About, mm-hmm. like a very famous. And this was um, n- not his first film, but it was the first film that he had actually done the cinematography before that was in color. That first film he was first cinematographer there's uh, i think on um lawrence of arabia he was the second like assistant cinematographer what a career i know well he went (laughs) on to big bigger stuff even after that so i think it shows this is a beautifully shot film it's filled with colors that are just explode off the screen it probably feels the most poish of all the poe movies in many ways just if for nothing else the way the script is written but 
it's decidedly not the actual text of the story either. <laughs> it is surprising that Corman actually directed this, especially those those last shots and some a few of them. I'm thinking to myself, did he really direct this? Yeah, and because it, it's it's incredible. It looks almost like something that Baba would do, or even at the beginning, it has that kind of a Bergman feel, like Seventh Seal. It's really gorgeous. It's not what you th- like, at least not what I think of when I think of Corman. Yeah, schlocky or like for the cheaper scare or mm. like the. All the cheap, all the stuff you associate with them is like cheap. It's fast. It's like shocking. It's entertaining. And this is like way more of a patient movie. Oh yeah, that. it's so like meticulous. Like, shots are long. I mean, I know back in the sixties there weren't like a bunch of quick edits like there are now, but shots seemed like especially long in this, where things would really linger for a while. That was one thing when you started talking about the sets and just like the the, the difference of being it's things that we don't do in movies anymore because typically we don't build sets like that anymore to where you can pan with someone walking down like through a corridor and into a next room and again and again without ever breaking the shot yeah those that, are some great shots yes. going between like <laughs> the different colored rooms yeah, yeah. that's like, such an odd thing he's got like a, the the green room at a club or something off of his main ballroom <laughs> And, and that's all one color. But then you go past that, and there's like a whole series of rooms that are exactly the same room, except in a different, very bright yeah. color, which all match the colors of the plague guys later yes, on, too. That that was one thing I didn't realize. And going back to the, they all represent a different plague, because when I started watching the movie, you know, reading the story, you, you have many more colors of rooms. It doesn't matter what colors they are, but there's definitely more than four, because there's like a blue one and stuff like that. And like you said, a green one, not in the same sense at all. <laughs> but so I, I had wondered why those were the four colors that they had chose, but since it is the plague dudes, that makes it sense makes now. Sense. Exactly. Yeah. There was a meeting at some point where Corman was like, if this one's successful, let's do yellow, let's do black, let's do all let's do Mask of the yellow death. Yeah. Mask of the mauve death. Ooh, I like the way that rings off the tongue. <laughs> my, my mom would have liked the, the mauve one. Yeah, yeah. So the prince would have too. <laughs> There's a really neat subplot in here that I liked where Prospero's wife Juliana is kind of pissed off about this new girl coming in here and she decides, well, I'm going to make my own deal with Satan. Thank you very much. And she goes through her own sort of private initiation ceremony and drinks some sort of psychedelics, presumably, Mm -hmm. and has this hallucination sequence that's just crazy. But notably, that was not even seen until like 10 or 15 years ago because it was oh, wow. edited out of the original cut because they thought it was too provocative. You know, I was, when I was watching it, I was like, man, this seems pretty risque for this era. Like, so that makes a lot more sense to me. I was like, I can't believe they got away with this. Right? And they did then. not. Yeah, okay, yeah. They did not. So they did not get away with it. Yeah, that makes sense. One thing that I really liked about that scene, I am a massive, absolute, I, I love Labyrinth with David Bowie. Oh, yeah. Um, and that bit in particular with the flowing curtains and even like the way her hair was done. I don't, if it wasn't seen until 10 or 15 years ago, then it couldn't have been like the same kind of thing. But that was what struck me in that first bit of the scene was I was like, this is totally like the masquerade ball in Labyrinth when the mirrors are coming down and all of this stuff is shifting and floating yeah. around. I was like, oh, Oh, but <laughs> <laughs> I think the best part of this whole film is the last 10 minutes or so is the uh, aforementioned where we see the other plagues meeting the sort of ironic for Prospero ending. It's just really, really well executed is like red death comes to the ball as person, but is also metaphorical at the same time, yeah. because as he's there, people it's- start dropping dead of the plague because it's made its way past the villages into the castle now. And Prospero doesn't give a fuck. He's like, great. This is Satan. Yeah. Or one of Satan's dudes. I did it. Where's my reward? 
and the Red Death is like, yeah, dude, uh, I, I'm not Satan. We don't, I don't even know Satan. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, death. My, I'm death. That's a totally different department. <laughs> Yeah, new God who this. <laughs> we, we, we are not connected. We don't work for the same government. He has no idea I'm here. <laughs> he doesn't know I'm here. We don't talk, is all yeah. I'm saying. And he's like, oh, fuck, so who are you? And he pulls off his mask, and underneath is Vincent Price. Yes. <laughs> and they knew it was going to be shocking, too, because they really get him right front and center in the camera. One thing that I thought was interesting about the portrayal of the Red Death is that, you know, in the beginning, it's, oh, a holy, you know, he spreads the disease to this old woman. But throughout the story, whereas you have this human who worships Satan and is an evil man, the Red Death is pretty chill and, mm-hmm. like, neutral. And he's just like, I'm just here, man. And he even goes so far as to do good deeds. Mm. And so I thought that was really interesting. The, the I am a much more calm and, I don't know, reasonable character that I, I am not evil. I yeah, just am. This is not the portrayal of death that we usually see where death doesn't have any opinion about how you lived your life. Death is the great equalizer, yes. as they say. <laughs> not in Mask of the Red Death, he's not, because he's like, that guy's a dick, that guy's a dick, that guy's a dick, you're cool, that guy's a dick. <laughs> First you of know? all, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, but he also did take out like some of that village, too. You know, True. Early on. Well, we don't know those characters, though. They might have been dicks. That's true, man. But I did like in a movie like where there's a ongoing, almost like not for its era, but for now, like annoying debate between like God and the devil and good and evil. It's like something we've like, I mean, well before this and well after that, it's just a classic lines. But I love that it boils down to like the only like certain God is just death. The Satan and the God, like they're both, it's like, the None irrelevant. of that matters. Like, death shows up and just wipes out That's, whoever is yeah. getting like, wiped everything out. Everything you did was pointless. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of the point of the Edgar Allan Poe story. Yeah. 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 But it was like, yeah. we don't pick and choose. You know, it's 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 inevitable. And, Your resistance yeah. is futile. Which mm-hmm. is what I like about, like, this as an adaptation. You know, a lot of liberties taken. Like, the core idea mm-hmm. is still, like, Absolutely. in the movie, right? Well, I remember seeing this when I was a kid, and I hadn't seen it since. But I always thought that the man in red was always Vincent Price that was always just kind of shadowed. And I always thought it was him. And so it was interesting to find out that it was a completely different actor, yeah. like John Westbrook. Or and I believe was name. even dubbed by a different actor. Yeah. Entirely. It, yeah. And I was wondering like who, cause it almost sounds like Christopher Lee at the very, very beginning. I was like, no way. <laughs> no uh, way. Which I was, I thought that would be interesting, but Did it's not Christopher at all. Lee, he must've done some Corman films, right? I would think so, yeah, yeah, but I can't think of any offhand. I mean, although Corman was American, he had a period of his career he worked a lot. Yeah, it was mostly Hammer, obviously. Because it was so much cheaper (laughs) to Mm -hmm. do it. And he was not at all happy with the way that the ball scene worked out. The, the final big scene. Oh, Although, really? Yeah, he did. He was like, he said, this is, he's always said, this is one of my favorite movies, except for I, w- <laughs> I would have done that better. And his reason was, is because he said the British crews have in their contract, they get like eight tea times a fucking shift. <laughs> it's like, and they were so slow. It's like, if I had, had an American crew, we would have knocked that shit out. Okay. That's kind of funny. It also ended up being the least financially successful of any of his Poe adaptations, but it is generally considered among like the top two or so. That's really interesting. Yeah, by critics. Yeah, because it was too. It was very florid. It was very arty. The others are a lot more directly horror based. You know, a lot more. A lot more. This one was expect. a little trippy. Yeah. Like. Yeah. This is kind of psychedelic. <laughs> it's definitely like you have to read a lot into it. I mean, he Lots wanted to make. Lens. He wanted to make something bigger than what the sort of stuff he really did. Like I said, for him, Poe was a big deal. And this, although this was supposed to be the second Poe film, he decided not to. I can't remember what it was. There was something else that came out around the same time that he was like, this is too similar to that. Ah. So we'll push it back. So this is actually one of the last ones he ended up doing. Hmm. Was the first one in 1960s? Something like that. Uh, so right. probably, probably around there. But I was wondering like, how successful 
it actually it actually was. But yeah, it's interesting that the that Corman kind of put this acid trip scene in that years before he actually did acid himself. You know, <laughs> like later, later on, like in, in the trip, I guess, is when he when he first did it. Man, there's this great line where the Red Death confronts Prospero. He goes, "Why should you be afraid to die? Your soul has been dead for a long time." <laughs> Man, some motherfuckers say that shit to me. Mm. I. I'm just probably going to die, actually. I'm not going to do anything. Just die right I, there. I, I, like, acting all tough. Like, you say that? Oh, man, I'm going to hold my gun sideways and everything. I, I, I had that feeling uh, <laughs> I had that feeling earlier in the movie when Prospero told that dude to act like a worm. And I was like... Yes. You told me to act like a worm. I'm leaving this party. <laughs> yeah. like, get the fuck out of here. And you get to play... I was like, I played acting games like this. <laughs> yes. It's like making rich people act like animals and like, you're a pig, so yeah. act like a pig. I also have like, Yay, like, I got the pig. I'll be a tree, week. but I'm not going to be a pig. That, 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 was, that was one of those things I was like, this is absolutely like the only moment in the film where I was like, oh, look at all of these actors because that is 100% uh, okay, we're in theater circle, let's do yeah. this exercise. And I was like, right, let's some improv nobody, let's some no matter improv how drunk you are, you cannot get an entire room of rich people to do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, once again, going back to Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> you can get yeah. rich people to do a lot of shit if you, you give them enough drugs and tell them it's cool. <laughs> also, I think one of those elements of horror that gets played in through, like, throughout the other movies is that kind of display of power of are you going to dare to do anything but what I say and just being in that position of yes okay I'm going to do whatever you're going to say because I have absolutely no power here anymore. <laughs> it's funny it was during that scene I wrote in my notes that uh like he's like a true true villain like you know he's done a bunch of terrible shit I was like this is like one of the more villainous scenes that he has just oh, yeah. like pure arrogant don't give a fuck like these are people he considers, like, near to be peers. Mm. You know, like, at least to be in his castle. And he still just treats them like pure shit. Well, yeah. Because, Worms. Yeah. like, he's the only one who made a deal with Satan. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, he's like, I- I'm, like, second in charge, basically. I mean, I've never met the guy. But, you know, I'm assuming I'm the favorite. I'm assuming that I am. Which, you know, obviously they didn't have horror films back then. Because if they had, he would have gone, dude, that never works out well for him. <laughs> I don't remember one film where the guy who was like thought he was Satan's like favorite disciple ended up coming to a great end. He does have <laughs> he does have real like stalker boyfriend vibes with Satan. He's like doing yeah. this shit. He's gonna love me. Yeah, I got this shit. He's like, look at all this stuff I built for him. Like, he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna call back. Yeah, he's the, gonna come. The, he's gonna come to the party. The only know? supernatural beings you should ever make that sort of compact with, that generally you turn out okay, is like folk horror, like nature deities. Yeah, because usually the bad guys win and come out okay at the end of those films like the wicker man were the bad guys punished no they were not <laughs> don't go up against nature gods and their followers if you're like a protagonist type of dude so is all i'm saying but satan you know i mean you may not make it to the end but ultimately your team's gonna win no, the, the second you cease to be useful for me you are no more that, that's how it is in any movie when anybody's like oh i'm gonna do this and i'm gonna have a position of power the second you are no longer useful, you're done. Or if it's just funny. <laughs> or if it's just funny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know if I was Satan with everything that's supposed to be Satan, I'd be like, you know, I know I still had some stuff like this guy was supposed to do, but it would be so funny if he fell down the stairs and ah, broke fuck his him. neck. <laughs> ah, fuck. So one just last note on here, uh, towards the end, the Red Death speaks in Latin, Sic Transit Gloria Mundi, which is not translated on the screen. So just for shits and grins, it means thus passes the glory of the world, which, you know, I don't know if that's insinuating that this was the end of humanity in this particular thing, or I don't know. I mean, like the dark ages, which weren't as dark as were generally reported, to be fair, but still. I mean... (laughs) There were lots of days at the beach. (laughs) 
I'm not, I'm not trying to spend time in the dark ages to tell you that. Oh, no, thank you. Yeah, still, I mean, everyone's like, oh, if I could time travel, I'd go back. I'm like, fuck going back. Fuck going back, dude. <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, there's a couple mysteries I'd like solved, but I wouldn't I wouldn't go to the Renaissance to hang out. It no. smelled so bad. It smells so but nobody's taking a bath in five weeks. <laughs> I'm like, no, I don't think so. No, I'd go forward. Thank you very much. Yes. And especially if you're a person of color, do not go back in the time no. machine. Yeah, I thought, there's I no that better a time. That's like a, it's a white like a, question for as sure. As like a brown yeah. dude, it's like, where can I go? <laughs> like, like, find no. your region, find your year, <laughs> check the books. It's like, I'll be all right here. Let's yeah. go back I mean, to like, maybe at the height of Egypt, if you were in Egypt, you'd <laughs> yeah. be like, okay, that actually probably would have worked out cool, assuming you don't become a slave. Assuming. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right, well, let's move on to our next film. We're moving up to 1973 with The Crazies. Now, I know what you're saying, longtime listeners of Deliberations of Doom. Hey, you guys already reviewed. <laughs> we did, but we reviewed the 2010 remake, and it is one of those very few horror remakes that I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it. It's actually better than the original. Ooh, I agree. Yeah. Hard to see. I watched really both. okay. Yeah. I watched both because I had never seen either, and I was watching this movie with company, and my company thought that we were watching the 2010 remake, <laughs> and so I had him sit sit with me through the 1973 version. He was like. This is not the movie I watched. So then we watched the next one. So this is the one I actually doubled up on. And it was really interesting to see the differences between them. And just like, I think more than anything, the difference of perspective of the original that we're about to talk about being more from the position of the military being in charge in their side of things versus, oh shit, I'm somebody right in the middle of this crap. This is George Romero. And it was also called Codename Trixie. And the version I had, which was the one that Arrow re-released recently, actually just says Codename Trixie. Yeah, it's the same one, one I watched. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't even say the crazies on it, which I guess is a slightly longer cut. No, I think it's only by like a minute or two. Yeah. It's not okay. like a super longer. But it's not a film that really needs to be super long. It's almost a documentary in the way that it's shot. The remake came out in the era of like all those like Michael Bay horror remakes stuff, and they all have a similar sheen and vibe. Like this movie is very unique. Like it's very Romero, like the way that first night of eleven dead, the news segments mm-hmm. and stuff where it feels like real life almost. And then that amusement park movie. Yeah, just recently. Just I recently released. It. Yeah. It's cool. It, it has a similar feel where it's like, it's supposed to be like an educational video that mistreating the elderly that Romero is just like, let's fucking go nuts. <laughs> and this, if we're going to mistreat the elderly, let's mistreat <laughs> yeah. the elderly. It just feels like so real. So much like that fire shot of that building burning. Oh yeah. Was just a real building on fire. They were doing controlled burn. And he just like got his cameras out and real fireman just burning it and shot around it. And like, so that's just like real life. Yeah. And so many people were played by townspeople, like all the people. Like, oh, yeah. There's a lot of like crosstalk audio where stuff's like confusing and just like doesn't seem like it's well mapped out. And it feels, whether it's intentional or not, it's effective. Well, oh, he, yeah. It feels chaotic. It feels like pure chaos. It has a naturalistic feel, I think partially because of that, because like so much of the cast were not even really actors. I mean, even the, <laughs> the soldiers dressed up in white encounter suits, chemical suits, are mainly high school kids <laughs> that they had cut. You know, you can't see their faces and you can't really tell how young they are. There's such an insane amount of extras in it, too, which makes you feel like he's just kind of pointing the camera and shooting like almost like a war footage. Well, he yeah. just went to this town and said, like, hey, you want to come in here? We'll be spending some money in this town. And the town embraced it like crazy. Like, even they didn't even bring in professional effects people. All the effects were done by people who put on firework shows and new things about explosives and firemen in the town so like the fire like you were saying was a real fire that he got permission that they had set to demolish a house it was yeah. a controlled burn i could really use that that would help and they were like yeah we'd love to do that i mean that's 
really neato, first off. Like, this town's just like, yes, we're going to have a movie made in our nowhere piece of shit town. (laughs) I think that's cool. But first off, I want to say this stars Lynn Lowry, who is kind of a horror scream queen from this era. She was in I Drink Your Blood, amongst many other films. And she also played a bigger part in Shivers, which is we're talking about later in the series. Richard Liberty, who you don't know the name, but if you saw Romero's Day of the Dead, he was the scientist that all the soldiers called Frankenstein, who was the one who was training zombies, yeah. uh, uh, most notably Bub as the main one. So he was like a major character in Day of the Dead. Those are basically the, the two biggest names that or most familiar names to horror fans here. But the story, if you don't already know, I mean, this is obviously a virus film. It's an American town that accidentally got affected by a military biological weapon. This was filmed in Evans City in western Pennsylvania. When it starts, we it's a very scary scene where this guy has just murdered his wife and his children are, like, scared of him and he's freaking out and acting, well... Crazy. Crazy! <laughs> it, it is, like, a truly... It's one of the scary scenes of any of the movies we watch. It, like, it is just, like, the most, like, helpless, like, two little kids kind of, like, playing... He's, like, scaring his little sister... And then it's like that feeling like where you see like the dad like, comes in just like acting like erratic and the older boy like knows like, oh shit. Yeah. yeah. Like this is like weird and scary. It is like, it feels really mm-hmm. scary. It feels really real. And we see the both from the viewpoint of the townspeople who are like, what the fuck is going on in this town as this virus does indeed make people act crazy and not all in one way. This is decidedly not just a different name for a living dead film. They act crazy and very, there's one woman who's just sitting there knitting when they find her, but she's murdered someone <laughs> yes! already. with stabs a motherfucker. <laughs> with a knitting needle. <laughs> no. like, okay, so this is a very, this is, they're not zombies, but they are all, everyone has gone insane yes. who gets this thing. And we see a lot of stuff in the viewpoint of this group of survivors in this town or, or trying to survive, of locals who are equally paranoid of the crazies as they are of the military who have moved in aggressively and are you know, basically for rounding up people and bringing them into one location, eventually in the film, sometimes quite violently, you know, not fucking around. We don't have time to do this lightly or to explain to you what's happening. You resist, you get shot. Yeah, get in the motherfucking <laughs> truck. And But we also see stuff from the viewpoint of the government officials and the military who did, in fact, create this virus in the first place. Not the first time we're going to encounter that in uh, this yeah. series here. And uh, are working actively on a cure, are trying to set up the quarantine and keep it. But honestly, none of those characters are treated with any sort of sympathy. They're there to sort of more exposition. Our empathy is with a group of people, David, Judy, Clank, Kathy Fulton, and her dad, Artie, as they're trying to escape the town, going from one place to another, hiding from soldiers, eventually killing some of the soldiers in an attempt to actually get out of here. And I like that this film ends with a sort of like there's not necessarily a way that you could contain it doing even this like it ends with like oh shit we've just discovered people have the virus in a, a neighboring yeah. city yeah you know yeah. and i will say that there's some empathy put on the lead doctor who's trying to find the cure for it and on the lead military guy and i feel like romero's like true like villain in all of this is just like the ineptitude of like government systems to communicate with each other and fit, like operate Efficiently. Oh, yeah. It's all about just miscommunications and not being efficient. And there's no one knowing what to do and like being evil at one point and just like incapable at other points. It's like Trump? incompetent. Donald Trump. How incompetent like he views like these systems. I also did write in my notes that this, <laughs> the main characters here are like anti-vaxxers wet dream. Yeah. <laughs> They're just like, you, I mean, it doesn't turn out great where it turns out like, 
if they would have trusted the science and worked in the government, they could have found something. They might have fixed the problem. Yeah, before but it got like, out. Uh, it is funny. It's like it's back when like true mistrust of the government were being told was like just cool. Yeah. Like, like it was healthy. It wasn't like a conservative and, idea. It yeah. was like a like healthy skepticism. Like, eh, like, no, we grew up being told. Like, I remember my generation was flat out told the government or somebody working with the government murdered the president of the United yeah, States. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> I was like, like, they were like, no, no, no. But believe me, that was the dominant paradigm. That shit. There's some shit is about to get uncovered. I mean, there's movies coming out all left and right where they're just that's just presumed to be true. <laughs> yeah, and the first audiences that saw this, they were they they didn't trust the government at all. They weren't surprised. Yeah. You know, for a second, that the military came in and started doing what they were doing. Yeah. yeah. Again, to making it feel feel real, like those scenes, like those real quick cut scenes, when it's cutting between the government officials talking, the soldiers going into people's houses, yes. the guys like going for the guns and be like, "No, come with us!" And like the little girls like screaming, like which is like just like a real child screaming. It just seems so chaotic and real. Like, and it makes sense, like where like the distrust of what's happening would like be ingrained. And like the people watching it too, like you're on you're on the side of the people. Uh, but then when you cut to like the scientists and the lead military guy, like they're not like brash and sane. They're trying to do it, but just like the systems in place, mm-hmm. it just trickles down to this like just chaos. I understand hearing you talk about it why you like this better than the 2010 remake. Yeah. The 2010 remake is straight up a Hollywood movie. It's yeah. not oh, trying yeah. to it, be like a like a fly on the wall. And yeah, this is like documentary style. For yeah. You. yeah, it's but just unique. It's cool. I yeah. think there's a this gets so raw that at points it's a kind of dull. These are not particularly great actors. They didn't write particularly great dialogue for them, and it's really boring when they're just hanging around the, talking. There were a couple moments where I was like, <laughs> my god, Jim, he's dead! Yeah. Like, just that that very Shatner, like, huh, yeah. huh. With some of this, and one thing that I felt this movie did really well in particular is that going through all of these movies, I'm going to keep saying things about the elements of horror, because I'm a terrible language nerd. Part of what I liked about this movie, and I felt, like I already said, that it did really well, is that there are certain things, especially like when it comes to sexually uncomfortable situations, there's a lot of between these movies, one of those things where I feel like the most horrific moments, or the moments where they're trying to really pull you in, is things involving pregnant women, mm-hmm. things involving children, and just like like what you were talking about when the kids see their dad, or just these entirely chaotic moments of its very very real because it's very, very normal things. And I think at least in general, as humans, we have attachments and feelings very strongly connected to this sort of things where, oh, something bad is going to happen to a pregnant lady. Oh no, these children just watched their parents be burned to death. And that was actually one thing between the two remakes that I really, really liked was in this one, you see they flamethrow bodies that have been infected. And the difference between the flamethrowers that they had available in the mid-70s versus in the 2010 version. I was like, that, that's an Elon flamethrower. Because before it's like, that's a weed burner. And then like, no, that's a real flamethrower. <laughs> also, I will fully admit, I am completely a huge Timothy Oliphant fanboy. So I was like, that makes a big difference for me why I like that movie so much. Because I'm like, oh man, he's the best. That, in that handsome devil? I'm all in. Anything Timothy Oliphant, I'm in. I'll watch it. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't even care if it's a bad movie. I'll watch it again. No, I do like that remake quite a bit. I like, During the pandemic, I watched The Crazies and the remake like back to back early on when I was like doing nothing. I was watching movies all day. Yeah. And I do, I do enjoy it quite a bit. But the first one is just like, there's... Even though there are moments of it gets a little mundane, a little boring here and there, nothing in that new one or nothing in like a lot of modern horror gets like as visceral as the crazies does without high production value. It's like low production value. It's pure just like capturing images on camera and editing. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah. that's it. And they like get so visceral. There's no like great gore. 
There's no like long tense no. scenes that really build up. It's just like it feels like chaos in a real way, and it's exciting. Honestly, like most of the virus films that have been made, which are not, and several on our list, I would definitely not say are horror films, which is something we rarely do. They're they're not. But if you are able to put yourself into that scenario, the idea of this happening is about oh, yeah. the scariest thing that seems yeah. totally plausible that could happen to you, especially yeah. lately. Well, and also well, imagine so. yourself as a pregnant woman in that situation. You know, it's, yeah. it's like or a little kid. You know, if, if those kind of outbreaks happen, they're already horrible. But then if you already have, you know, something that you're dealing with, too, on top of all that, I mean, it's really... So you really should just horrific. watch the French movie inside to make yourself... <laughs> <laughs> oh, this was also... This was one of the two movies in which people did not bleed from their eyeballs. Which I which I was like, okay, look, checkmark that nothing else has had. Out of Two out of our eight movies, nobody bled from the eyeballs. Everything else was like, yes, hemorrhagic fever. This barely counts as a horror film. There's elements of it in there, but like I said, a lot of these, I think, hard to really call a horror film. Just like, I mean, we'll talk about later, a Soderbergh made one, which I actually find the scariest of any of these movies, because it's so fucking realistic and terror that it's just like, wow, that we just kind of went through something <laughs> like that, but not as bad as that. And it played out exactly the same way. Mm, but not, we not exactly. It actually plays out better, yeah, better. in a Contagion than it does in our room. <laughs> we'll I was going to say one last thing about the crazies, if I could say, I, I really have a personal connection to it because the first time I actually saw the crazies was the first time I ever met Romero. Oh, nice. Because it was the same night and it was at an all night horror event. And so we were waiting in line for hours to meet Romero and then they just showed movies all night. And so the crazies came on maybe around two in the morning. I was kind of dozing it, you know, off and on, which is actually works well for that movie because, you know, the quieter part, you can take a little nap and then, and then kind of wake up when somebody <laughs> starts screaming. But it was always like a, a really special film to me and just outside, you know, at an insane kind of abandoned, uh, insane asylum. Uh, so it was a lot of fun and just one of the most like memorable horror nights I've I've ever had. By the way, why are there so many abandoned insane asylums in America? There's like a lot. There's one like two hours from here. I can um, answer that question. Yeah? We have a lot more reason when it comes to science now when there are many, many things that we just used to classify as we can't help you insanity. Stop, that- you're being hysterical. Exactly. Exactly. I I I've had three children in the last two years and zero orgasms in my entire life, and my husband is constantly unhappy with me. Clearly I'm crazy. I'm so glad you found uh, time to do this podcast. But there there <laughs> <laughs> but j- just stuff like that, just being able to better diagnose, being able to better treat, and fewer people being sent to an asylum when it was entirely unnecessary, because it used to be the sort of uh, criminally insane mm-hmm. and a little bit bipolar and manically depressed all used to be exactly the same fucking thing as mm-hmm. anybody was concerned. And to all those patients, too, that, you know, probably shouldn't have been there, it would be nice when they left the place abandoned if they would actually take the records with them. Because yeah, when right. you go yeah. back, you walk through some of those places and there's still, like, yeah. the strap beds, everything there, the file mm-hmm. cabinets, was you can it? go through them and look at patients' records. There's it's a really nuts. good YouTube channel I cannot remember the name of, but they go through abandoned buildings and probably at least a fifth of their content is insane asylums and it's it's, it's gorgeous they have beautiful shots beautiful footage i'll see if i can try and find it later there's a but movie is... what is it section nine yeah, session session, session yeah. nine where they yeah. like got permission to use an abandoned insane asylum right. and like, all the stuff in there all the props they're not props that were constructed that was shit that was left there mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like oh okay that's cool and it's not even the only movie with a completely different abandoned insane asylum no. that it was totally <laughs> the same deal <laughs> <laughs> there's a japanese one like nora 
Samurai, The Curse or something oh, like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. And the same deal. They had got access to an asylum. It's like, yeah, all that shit was just there. <laughs> yeah, if it's, if it's a Japanese one, it's like, going to be inherently spookier too. <laughs> yeah, Agreed. But anyway, that was the crazies. Not what we were just talking about. I, I like I said, this is, I, this is my third time seeing it. And I like it better now than I did when I initially saw it because I think I was like, I saw this. I was like, Ooh, I'm the world's biggest fan of his dead, dead movies. And this is just not really terribly comparable to those i mean more night of the living dead more than any of them but still not really it's closest to night of the living dead probably just in like the rawness of that mm-hmm. more like in the production of it and like getting across an idea and a feeling two different feelings really from crazies to night of the living dead i guess paranoia is in both but that might be my favorite romero outside of the the three original deads like hmm. this is this is my third or fourth time watching it and the first time it was similar like Watch it the first time. Fine. Okay, I watched it. It's kind of weird and old. Yeah. And every time I watch it, like I gain more appreciation for it. Have just, you like, seen Martin? Yes. Okay. I do like Martin a lot, but okay. I haven't watched it recently, so maybe I should watch it Fair to enough. compare. And, Me like, just watching this again, I was like, man, this movie, you just don't see a lot of movies like this. And I really love the idea of like a really do-it-yourself. We're going to make it work with the town people, with the mm-hmm. effects we have, and getting across what you want to get across with those limitations as effectively as this. It's, like, it's impressive stuff, yeah. you know? It's okay. really good. Totally. I, I think this film is more interesting because of the knowledge of how it was made and what was involved with being it made sure. than just if you s- just stumbled across it. You'd be like, I, what? Oh, yeah, no, <laughs> and I, I enjoyed it on its own, knowing nothing about this, but now knowing that especially, that makes it extra special. It'd be interesting to do a double feature and watch Night of the Living Dead and then watch The Crazies in black and white. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, did they have a black and white version? No, but it's just, you know, just like that. <laughs> Because it seems like today they arbitrarily put stuff in black and white. Like, they why did you do a black and white version of this? I don't know. Isn't that what yeah. we're doing now? Yeah. 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 All right. Well, that actually is the end of our first episode of Deliberations of Doom with the return of it. Uh, we're going to come back with three movies we're going to cover next time. This one is only two because we spent a while in the beginning sort of introducing everybody and getting to know y'all. Damn, y'all just can talk. I swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the only thing I'm going to promise. <laughs> okay. This goes back to the insane asylum thing you were talking about there. Uh- <laughs> and uh, before we go, does anybody want to throw out a quick recommendation for anything they've seen recently in horror that, like, oh, you should check this out? Plan on seeing. Um, yeah. I'm watching Malignant. Malignant tonight too. Yes, I'm watching Malignant tonight. And yes, I'm I have pump- my plans. I've heard a lot of really good things about it, so <laughs> I can loosely recommend it. Like for the next four weeks, I still have not seen it. It seems exciting. I'm and then he's gonna hate it. I mean, next show, it's like, don't watch it. Seriously, <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Should we should we say what we're covering next week so people can watch? Oh, uh, yeah, we can actually go ahead and tell you what to expect next week we're going to start off with david cronenberg's 1975 film shivers which is i think this is the only time we've ever double dipped on a film on deliberation doom because we have covered this film before but not in the context of talking about it in virus films and i think we have different things to say about it because of i really like this one and then we're taking a look at film i had never heard of before 1980s virus which was directed by the director of battle royale (laughs) right like which was his last movie so he was really fucking old when he made that but like he also did like battles without honor and humanity and tour 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 you're like big dude but it was like almost three hours long it's an epic uh, like japanese american crossover film and then we'll be looking at 2008's pontypool which yes is a virus film that was rad <laughs> it's the film that probably stands out the most in terms of a different way of thinking about viruses canada's version of a virus movie. <laughs> 